Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We've been in a sermon series called Possible, um, and it's, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and the reason why it's called Possible, uh, if you don't mind me telling you for the umpteen time, is because oftentimes when we see God's commands in Scripture, um, if, it, if it looks too hard, the first thing in our mind is that that can't be me, that's, that's, that's impossible. And so the sermon series titled Possible invites us to see things from a different vantage point. Actually, it invites us to see things from God's vantage point. And Paul makes a very important point in the text where Paul tells us that things are possible not because of the power, uh, our own willpower, but it's possible because of the power of God that lives on the inside of us. And so I want to encourage you yet again, and I'll do it next week and the week after that and the week after that, and just let you know that, that when you see God's commands, you don't have to first think, man, that is impossible. But because God is on the inside of you, you can say, man, you know what? I can overcome that. I can live into it. That's actually possible to me because even though my story might be something different, maybe this is something I've struggled with forever, but because of God and his power, it is possible for me. Amen. Amen. So and so we need to get that and wrap that in, in our minds and let us repeat that to ourselves, because with God, all things are possible. And so today we land in chapter five of first Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me there to first Corinthians chapter five. We're going to read all of chapter five, verses one through 13 today, one through 13. When you're there, say amen. All right. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this even though I I am absent in the body this is Paul talking to them from a distance because he's writing a letter here's what Paul says I am present in spirit As one who is present in spirit, who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus. Here's what you should do. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Corinthians, I got to tell you, your boasting is not good. Don't don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, for real, for real, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister who claims to be a Christian and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't, don't even eat with such a person. Don't even go to brunch with them. For what business is it of mine to judge the world? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. He judges the world. But remove the evil person from among you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that your word changes us and transforms us. We thank you, Father, that we can rest in you and rest in what you've said through your word. And so today, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that your people are transformed today. I pray that we would grow and learn and mature and gain wisdom in such a way that our lives would be radically different, radically changed. And so, so, Father, my prayer today is that you would change our perspective, change how we view the world, change how we view you, God. God, God, raise our level of thinking, God, to match yours, God. And so, Father, I pray today that we see purpose and value in who we are and who you called us to be. And so, Father, I pray today, God, that with all the distractions and everything going on in our personal lives and in the world, God, we can focus in in these few moments. And I pray, God, that, that after today's service, after today's message, the word of God would resonate with us. It would sit with us, Father, that, that it would resound in our spirits, God, so that we would hear it, God, that we would know it, we would be sure of it. And ultimately, God, I pray that we would find hope and find grace and find mercy, find salvation, forgiveness in your son Jesus. And so, Father, I pray you be honored through our time together today. We thank you for this opportunity, God. We thank you that we can gather together as a body of believers and so, Father, we just pray that you would meet us here, that you'd be with us, that you would teach us, that you would show us the way. It's in Christ's name we pray. And the people of God said amen. Amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series possible, today and for the next several weeks, I want to add a subtitle to our sermon series. And today I want to start that part one. It's called A Better Story. Possible. A Better Story. Part one. Possible, a better story, part, part one. The, the reason why I, I want to call this a better story is over the week, last week or so, I've watched several interviews of celebrities and their perspective on, on God and on Christianity in, in particular. And, and, and you may say, why would you take the perspective of a celebrity? Because a celebrity in our day and age, because of social media, because of media in general, what celebrities think is just a macrocosm of what everybody else is thinking. Because we are more influenced by them than we are influenced by what we believe and what the scripture says. And so I, I want to tell us a better story, tell a better story, because I think we as believers have not only a better story, I think we have the best story. I, I think the Christian worldview doesn't just make sense for us, it makes sense for everybody. And so today we're going to approach a very heavy and hard topic, but there's no reason for us to fear because when we put it in perspective, when we put it in perspective from God's, from, from God's design, then we, I think we will see how it, how it all fits together 
and how it all makes sense. But before I go immediately into the topic, I, I want to pan out. I want to pan out a little bit. And I, I want us to look from a 30,000 foot view. I want us to kind of get an overview. And I want to I pan all the way back. And I want us to kind of live in and learn our our purpose, our mission and our purpose in the world, that we have been called to be witnesses, that we have this worldwide mission as a church. And God has called us to be his witnesses and messengers of what he has done. We, we as believers have this awesome, wonderful privilege to tell and to demonstrate to the world the goodness of God through the transformed lives that we live. And, and so what I'm saying is this, that because we've been transformed, because we have been redeemed by God, how we do everything is a testimony to the goodness of God. How we do everything matters, and how we do everything is a testimony to the goodness of God. How we do everything tells a story. So how we live our personal lives, how we live our family lives, how we live our corporate life together as a church, how we work, how we serve our community, how we steward all things tells the story of the goodness of God, but not only the goodness of God, it also tells people about the power of God to transform and make People knew. People know that God is powerful, not just by his creation, but they also know that God is real and God is powerful by the character of his Christians. And so we are these living epistles that people see. And so our lives tell a story. Our lives point people to the God of creation and lets them know what God has done to save sinful humanity, to forgive them through the finished work of his son, Jesus. Even more so, we as believers are part of an even greater story because when God saved us, God brought us into his family. We are actually sons and daughters of the one living true God. This is the greatest family you can be ever be a part of. This is better than being a Rockefeller. This is better than being a Walton. This is better than any family that we could ever think of because we are God's sons and daughters and God has brought us into to the family of God. It is called the body of Christ, the church. And that means something. You are part of the most significant organization that's ever been created. You are part of the most significant family that's ever been created. You have purpose. You have dignity. You have value. And you are a son or a daughter of the most high king. And that is not something to shirk at. You are a part of the body of Christ, the church. And that means something. But the problem is we have a, such a low view of the church, we just see ourselves as some casual week-to-week churchgoers. But, but there is more to the story than that. You should be proud that you go to church. You should be proud that you are a member of the body of Christ because it means something. Because the church is the only organization or institution that Christ has died for and the only one that he is coming back for and you are a part of it. 
And so that is good news, and we need to understand this. We need to know this. And so I want to give you a definition, a working definition of church membership. And I got this definition from Nine Marks, who writes a series of educational, educational books about the church life. In particular, this book, this quote is from a book called Church Discipline. And here's what it says. Church membership is not like membership in a club or some other voluntary organization. It's about citizenship in a kingdom in which we are affirmed and recognized as ambassadors by the king's embassy-like representative, the local church. And so we're not just members of a club or an organization or something that you voluntarily put yourself through or signed up for or paid to be a part of. We have been called by God and we have been made citizens in his kingdom. He has affirmed us and made us ambassadors of the local church. And so we represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So everything that you do matters. For us, it's not just church attendance because we've been brought, we've been bought and paid for. It's not just church, it's life. You remember a couple years ago when dudes was walking around wearing shirts that say, ball is life? Well, for you, church is life. We've been made a part of his body, and he has given us the precious privilege of representing him in the world. It's not an option for us, it's who we are. It's not an option, it's who we are. And so here's where I want to land us and, and kind of put a foundation beneath us, I want, I want to read this scripture to you. And th- this is going to kind of shape and frame how we go forward. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And here's what it says. This is why, how everything we do does matter. Conduct yourselves honorably among Gentiles. That means unbelieving people, the unbelieving world. Conduct yourselves honorably among Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, and they will, they will have to observe your good works. And what will happen when they observe your good works? They will glorify God on the day he visits. Once again, your life is a testimony to the goodness of God and the power of God to transform our lives and make things new. People know that God is real because not because of his creation. It's true that it is because of his creation, but it's also because of the character of his Christians. So conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That means where we live, learn, work, or play. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. And they will observe the world. Look at your good works. Look at your good deeds. Look how you work. Look how you do your family life. Look how you manage your finances. Look how you serve your community. Look how you treat your family and will glorify God because of it. Your life is telling a better story. In a world that does not need any help finding terrible and horrible things about Christians and the church, how we do everything matters. Our stewardship matters, our service matters, and our sexuality matters. Our stewardship matters, our service matters, and our sexuality matters. Why? Because we have a better story. We have a better story, and this is not just something that the world needs to know. This is something that we need to know. 
We don't even know our own story. We don't even know why sometimes God commands us to do certain things and tells us to do other things. We don't even know. And so what happens is we naturally bend and lean toward the world's way and say, God is repressive. God is keeping me some, some, from, some, from, from something. God is restricting my freedom. God is not allowing me to be who I am and express myself because we don't know the story. And we assume that we know something that God does not. But today, I think we have a better story. I know we have a better story. And and we as Christians have become so synonymous for what we're against. But today, I want you to learn what we're actually for. That's so important. And so, because we've been so inundated and bombarded with the world's way of thinking and the world's story, we fail to live into our own story. And this is what is happening in the church at Corinth. Everything that was going on outside of the church was going on inside the church. The culture had infiltrated the church. And primarily in this area of sexual immorality. So so I, I said at the outset, week one, I gave a little backdrop about Corinth. I said the Corinth is like New York meets L.A., meets Las Vegas. If you want to make it, you go to Corinth. In Corinth, you can have whatever you want. Whatever your thing is, you can find it in Corinth. If if sports is your idol, you can find it in Corinth because they have the Isthmian games. If you want sexuality, if you want sex unlimited, you can go to Corinth and you can have what you want because in Corinth, there's a temple, a temple goddess by the name of Aphrodite, and the temple sits up on a hill overlooking the city. And so whenever you came outside, whenever you went to work, whenever you went to the grocery store, whenever you went to the mall, you come outside, and there off in the distance, you can see the prostitution temple, the temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And so it was a reminder of who was king in Corinth. It was the goddess of love and the goddess of sex. And you see it everywhere you go. And so you're always reminded of it. It is is bombarded in you. So every time you come outside, you can see it. And so you might say, man, that's a shame. Well, the thing is, for us, it's even harder because we don't have to go outside to see it. It's sitting in our back pocket. And so it's easy to see how they could be so blinded. Because it was so commonplace in their culture. And because it's so commonplace and so normal, it's kind of like furniture in your house. There are certain things in your house you don't even notice is there because it's been there so long. You think your whole house is clean, but there's a part of your house that you never go in and it's filled with dust. And it's filled with dust not because you, don't, you like dust, but because you don't even, you forgot that it's there. It just becomes a part of everything else. It fits into the whole picture that that you don't even notice it. Notice it. And this is what is happening in the church at Corinth. And and so they, they are somewhat prideful because they're spiritually gifted. I said that in week one. They're spiritually gifted. They can speak in tongues. They can speak. They understand the mysteries of God. They understand the deep things. They can prophesy. They do all of these things. And so they they have a high view of their spiritual gifts, but a low view of their sexuality. 
a high view of their gifts, but a low view of their sexuality. And here's what Paul says in verses one through two. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant because you're still talking about your gifts and you're still judging your leaders and their skill sets. But you got this going on right there in the midst of your congregation. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? And so he, he says that there, there's sexual immorality among you. And, and I want to give us a working definition of sexual, sexual immorality. The, 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 the word in the Greek, sexual immorality comes from a word in the Greek, porneia. And I don't think you have to guess real hard where we get our English word and where it derives from. Sexual immorality is porneia, and it is the most general term for all kinds of sexual sin, which includes sex outside of marriage. That means before you're married and if you're not sleeping with your spouse, sleeping with someone else after marriage. And so it includes all kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage. And that includes single people who are in a relationship and say, but, but we're married in our hearts. That don't count. To, to, to single people who live with somebody that you're not married to, but you say God knows our hearts. When, when you're doing what, 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 the old, what my, my dear friend Mike Aitchison calls the shack attack. When you're doing the shack attack, that don't count either. It, it includes all of that, oh, but, but it includes everything that is not marriage between a man. And engagement falls under that umbrella too. Because you can get out of an engagement. So that counts too. And so it includes everything outside of marriage, including lust and adultery and prostitution and same-sex sexual behavior. But it also includes rape and molestation. And so we have a heavy, heavy topic today because something that is very perverse is going on. And I want to say something. I just want to read some stats, make it real to you. One out of every six American women have been the victim of an attempted or completed rape. One out of every six. One in nine girls under the age of 18 experience sexual abuse or assault at the hands of an adult. One out of every six American women have been the victim of an attempted or a completed rape. One out of nine girls have been sexually abused or assaulted at the hands of an adult. But women are not the only ones who experience rape and molestation. One in 53 boys have been the victim of the same thing. 63,000 children per year are raped or molested. It's terrible. 63,000 is terrible, but one is terrible. It's thought that 20 to 30 percent of American women have been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. 20 to 30 percent. So I want to say this. We live in a fallen world. And we'd be naive and foolish to think that even the women in this room have never experienced that. 
And so I want to I wanna level with you today. If you've dealt with rape or molestation or you've been touched by some stranger or you were touched by a family member, my heart breaks for you. Whenever I hear of a child in particular, somebody doing something from a child, I, I don't care if I don't even know the child. There's a rage that boils up on the inside of me. And maybe you, that have, that's happened to you and you, you, you deal with some brokenness to this day. That maybe it shaped and formed your view of sexuality. That maybe you, you can't even, something that you have no control over. Maybe it's put a fear in you or maybe it's made you promiscuous. Maybe you feel devalued and worthless because someone touched you without permission. I want to level with you and tell you that God loves you. There's also a man who was stripped, who was abused, who was sexually exposed. His name is Jesus. And so the pain and the shame and the guilt that you may feel, he took that on himself on the cross. And so I want to let you know that there is freedom and there is healing in Christ Jesus. And these are not words. This is something that you can experience. And this is not to say get over it, but this is to level with your pain and say that although many people may not be able to feel it, God can. He is not detached from your experience. And so I want to level with you in that because it's real. And the church has gotten a bad raps in regards to sexual abuse. But however, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't blame Christ for the church's misdeeds. Don't blame Christ for the church's misdeeds. The word of God has never made provision for any type of sexual abuse. The word of God makes no provision for it. You can't find it in scripture. And no word would ever take away your pain, but you are not alone. You're not alone in what you feel. And so, so as, as I was researching and reading and studying, I, I want to give us a perspective from, from Sam Alberry, who wrote the book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And here's what Sam Alberry says in the book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? He says this, when someone is wrong sexually, it is more than just a couple of parts of the body that are affected. One thing is very clear, the whole person is impacted. The damage is not just physical, but emotional and psychological too. These wounds can last a lifetime and manifest themselves in a thousand different ways. Sex is not just parts of our biology. When someone is sexually assaulted or when someone is sexually betrayed, it is not just their body that is attacked. They as a person are violated. And this speaks to the depth of it. And God cares about you because God cares. The truth is, is that sex matters to God because people matter to God. People get here through the act of sex. God cares about it. God cares about sex because God cares about us. And here's what you need to know. Here's a big revelation. Sex is not our idea. Sex was God's idea. And who's better ever to tell us how sex should work than the inventor of a thing? But we feel that we know something that he does not. 
But God created the gift and the beauty of sex and God also in order to protect it, put parameters around it. And the parameters was for it to consist of a man and a woman in the context of marriage for procreation and for enjoyment. The parameters God put in place are not to repress, but to preserve its purpose. Let me say that again. The parameters God put in place are not to repress, but to preserve its purpose. When when, when sex happens between a man and a woman, a married man and a married woman, the purpose is that it is a signpost that points to the union between Jesus and his bride, the church, in which he has already given his life for and he's coming back to consummate his marriage with. Anything outside of that is doing what God did not intend to be done and it is a misuse of God's good gift. The misuse of God's good gift. If you walk into a bank and you get your deposit slip and you fill it out and you write how much you want to get and you, you give it to the teller and someone else comes to the window next to you but they don't have a deposit slip because they didn't put anything in the bank to begin with. but they have a gun. Both of you can get money out. But one has legally got a right to get money out. The other one does not. Marriage versus outside of marriage. Both got the same thing. Both made the same withdrawal. One was right, one wasn't. And this is what it's like. And in this case, and in this text, it is incest. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, I know you're thinking maybe this is his biological mother, and that's terrible. But according to the text, the way the text is set up in the Greek, it gives the thought and the idea that it's not his biological mother that he's sleeping with, but he's sleeping with his stepmother. He's sleeping with his stepmother. He's sleeping with his father's wife. And I want to tell you this, that the Bible does not make a provision for incest. Incest was actually punishable by death. If you read Leviticus chapter 18, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 27, 30, it talk, 27 and 30, it talks about incest. Incest was not a provision that God made, and it's an extremely horrendous offense in everyone in the church. Here is the problem. Everybody in the church knew the guy was sleeping with his stepmother, and no one said a word. No one said anything. They acted as if nothing was going on. Everybody ignored it. They failed to address the man. And the apostle Paul is appalled. He's he's repulsed because what's happening is not even accepted out there in the world. They don't even do incest. But it's happening in the church. They, 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 They are in the most sex crazed place in the Roman Empire. And that was even too much for them. That was too much for them. And Paul is saying, how can you be arrogant when your conduct within the church is worse than what's tolerated in the city? How is that even possible? The church's response was actually worse than the affair itself. And here's what he says. You're arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? This should break your heart. Sexual sin should break our hearts because it breaks God's. 
But because of the culture and the society we live with and we get bombarded with it, we get bombarded with it, it's everywhere, it's all over the place. You can't turn on the TV. You can't even watch a commercial. Why the commercial got these two, what's happening? What's going on? Let, can I have a, can, let me choose, if I want to see this, can I choose to see this? What does this have to do with a medicine commercial? You advertising pizza, but you throwing this in my face. It's not increasing my appetite for pizza. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? But, but they, they didn't even care. They were just ignoring it. And, and there's some, 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 some maybe some thoughts about why they're ignoring it. Some believe that this guy was kind of wealthy and, and he had some, some, some clout in, in the world out there. And, and remember, I told you this, the idol is success and idolatry. People, people want to be successful. And so if you confront this man, you might lose your opportunity for him to pull you up. You, you might miss your opportunity for the next level or to get to where you got to go if you say something to this dude. And so the people are just silent. And the silence in God's eyes means they're complicit. They should have been grieved about it. They should have been heartbroken about it. He says, shouldn't you be grieved? And here's the thing. Grief is not just, man, oh, man, that's, that's bad. Godly grief causes action. Godly grief makes us do something to correct it. Godly grief doesn't just say, ah, ha, got caught. No, godly grief says, ah, this breaks my heart. Second Corinthians 7.10 says this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death because worldly grief just says, ah, my bad. But godly grief produces repentance, a change, a turn, a turn from sin and a turning towards God. And so, so, so their grief, they should have been grieving. They should have been grieving. They should have been grieving, meaning that they don't just ignore it. They don't just acknowledge it. And they don't, they don't just do that or, or they don't just wait for God to magically come down and say something to the dude. But they go to the brother and say, bro, what's happening? What's going on here? Notice Paul never addresses the man. He's in the congregation. Paul doesn't address him. Who does Paul address? He addresses everybody. He addresses everybody in the congregation. The community is responsible for its own members. And here's what he says. Don't just, don't just sit there. Should you be filled with grief? And then what does he say in the next few words? And remove the person from your congregation. Uh-oh. Paul says, I'm there with, I already pronounced judgment. I'm there with you in spirit. Jesus is with me. He's with you. He agrees with it. This is very similar to the, to, the, to the scripture. We love the quote of Matthew where we say, where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. So let's pray for this new car. No, that's in the context of getting somebody out of a church.
And so it introduces us to this idea of church discipline, and this is hard for some people to get. Paul is saying remove them because this, this is an egregious offense. This is incest. And Paul is like, I, as the apostle, I have the authority to make this call, but I don't want to do it myself. I, I, I want you to do that too because I need to know that you care about this too. That, that, you, that you as believers are also grieved by these actions. And this is important because the church is God's temple. We read this in chapter 3. Don't you know yourselves that you are God's temple? But the, and the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And this is what you are. That they are God's temple. God resides in their midst. And, and so this is so severe that the whole congregation needs to be a part of what is going on. They should all be grieved. And this is so important if we go all the way back to week one of this sermon series and chapter one verse 10 what does Paul tell them now I urge you brothers and sisters in the name of the Lord Jesus agree on what you say agree on what you say that there be no divisions among you that you be united with the same understanding the same conviction why does he say this because it's important that they be unified in what they believe about God and what they believe about church discipline This is why context matters in Scripture. And he's trying to instill in them a responsibility to each other, the responsibility to do something about it when something immoral or something egregious happens. But how can they if everyone's trying to do their own thing? And this is so urgent and so crazy that he wants them to excommunicate the guy, get him out immediately. And this is where church discipline gets misconstrued. Here's what this means. Everybody is welcome to attend, but not everybody is welcome to be a member. Does that make sense? Anybody can come to church, but not everybody can be a member of a church. Because church membership means something. It actually means that you profess that you are a follower of Jesus and that you also will live up to, to the best of your ability, the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, to live as a follower of Jesus. That's not to say that you will be perfect, but it is to say that you will strive to grow in your faith and walk and follow after Jesus. Not just say, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to still do my thug thistle. And so then he introduced this idea of church discipline. So church, this, is a, this is a hot button topic because church discipline in the New Testament happens in a couple of places. You see it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's the infamous, famous Matthew 18 passage. But then there's Titus chapter 3. In our passage, because the thing has been made super duper public, everybody knows about this affair that is going on. And so he has to address it immediately. The person has to be expelled. It's an ongoing thing that's been happening for a long time. So there's no conversation to be had. There's no meeting to be had he just says get the person out of the church immediately but we move to Matthew 18 and Jesus is having a conversation and Jesus says if you have an offense go to your brother and then if he return if he, re- he admits what he did and he repents you run your brother back you receive him back but if not then you take two or three witnesses with you and then you confront the brother or the sister and if then they don't repent with the two or three witnesses then you tell the church and if that doesn't embarrass them enough and make them turn around and repent and trust in Christ again, then you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning you treat them like an unbeliever. And so Paul picks up where Jesus ends. Because obviously this brother is not living in a way that that accords with being a Christian. But then there's Titus chapter 3 
where they address a, re, a, a divisive person. And we think division is uh, just a little something. It's a little bit. He says warn them one time, warn them two times, and then get rid of them. Reject that person. Get them out of the church. One warning, two warnings, and then ain't no meeting, ain't no phone calls, ain't no emails. One, one warning, two warnings, get them out of the church. That's how serious God takes division. But we always, it was, it was his side, but then it was his side, and then, but, but this side, but I can see it from his perspective, but then I can see it from his perspective. It's his side, but then it's this side. And so I'm just trying to figure out where, no. There ain't no his side or her side or they side or them side. If they'd been divisive, one once, one twice, hit the road, Jack. But here's what you want to know. Here's what you need to know. Excommunication is not done to be punitive, but it's done to be redemptive. The goal of excommunication is for the person to eventually snap out of it and then repent. It's never punitive. And here's what it says. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he may be saved in the Lord's day. And what he's saying is he doesn't want the person to be killed by Satan. But what he's saying is let let him go. Let him go do his thing. And let him figure out that this ain't what he wants. You've seen this before. You've done this before. A parent says, all right, I, I already t- I, I'm tired of telling you. Go ahead. You know what they're communicating to you? I'm going to let life teach you that what you're doing ain't right. Well, I'm from, they call it a hard head. Make, I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. Sorry. Sorry. But the goal of the excommunication is repentance followed by restoration. But if they never repent, that means that they were never a Christian in the first place. The goal is repentance and restoration. And some would say, oh, this is so mean. But no, this is loving and caring. This is loving and caring. What would be better? You get to keep your little friendship and communicate this message of cheap grace, meaning that that what Jesus did for us, eh, it didn't really mean much. Do your thing. Or would you rather tell them the truth in love and grace and let them repent and their soul be saved? But the problem with our generation is that we think we know something that God does not. And this whole idea of excommunication ain't new. What happens in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're wilding out. They do what God tells them not to do. And if you read Genesis 3, 23 to 24, it tells them that God kicked them out of the garden. And God is saying in this text, I ain't new to this. I'm true to this. This is who I am. Oh, he's just kicking people out of the church. God kicks the first two people he created out of the garden. For their disobedience. But then God redeems them. And God comes along and God covers them. The problem with us is we think we love better than God does. We think we invented love. We didn't invent love. God is love. We can't love better than him. Our love is purely based on feelings for the most part. And so our perspective on church discipline can't be based on our emotional attachment to people. Oh, that's my friend. But that's God's son or daughter. His relationship trumps yours. 
Are we going to use our feelings or the infallibility of Scripture? We have to choose Scripture. And I want to say this. I want to read a quote from William Barclay. It says this. Discipline should never be exercised for the satisfaction of the person who exercises it, but always for the mending of the person who has sinned and for the sake of the church. And here's the problem. The man's sin affected the whole church. Verses 6 through 8 says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And here's what he's saying. If you don't address this, it's going to look like you give permission to it, and other people are going to be attempted to live this way. It's going to stifle your growth in Christ if you don't address it. But not only that, you bring judgment on the church by not addressing it. Because that's how God feels about sin. It's not that we sin and God wants to kick us all out, but this is an egregious act. This is ongoing. This is unrepentant sin. This is no desire to change. This is just, I am who I am. It is what it is. Who going to check me? And God says, you should check them. Because I'm going to check them. A small amount of leaven. Leaven was a part of bread that they would take a part of the bread, take out of the batch of dough, preserve it. For the next batch, they would take this batch by itself, ferment it in some sort, of water, some sort of water or juice, and then they would add it to the new batch of dough, and then it would make the dough rise. And so it shows the power of just a little leaven, just a little small piece of leaven could make a whole batch of dough do something. And this is what he's saying about our sin. Our sin doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the whole That's why we all should care. And what he's saying is remove, remove the the old leaven so that you can be a new batch of dough. You can be who God designed you to be. Get away from the sin. Detach the sin. Be this pure uh, new batch of dough. And then he talks about Christ being the Passover lamb. And what he's saying about that is, is he's taking them back to the book of Exodus when before the Passover, before he freed them from Egyptian bondage, they were supposed to have a meal that night. But before for the meal, they, they slaughtered a lamb, smattered the, door, smattered the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. When they did that, the angel of death who was coming to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, in Egypt would pass over the houses that had the blood of the lamb smattered on the doorpost. And they were supposed to have a meal that night, but God was going to get them out of there quick. And God said, I don't want you to eat leavened bread. I want you to eat unleavened bread because you ain't got time for leavened bread. You ain't got time for the dough to rise. You got to eat it pack up and get ready to go and so I want you to eat the unleavened bread and he is saying Christ is the blood of the lamb that's been smattered over our lives that has brought us forgiveness and a new life and so he's saying because of what Christ has done he has made us a new batch and we don't have to be malice and evil but we can be sincere and truthful he's made us new And he's telling us that because what Christ has done, we should put away all forms of evil and live in a way that is consistent with who God has redeemed us to be. I want to read this to you. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says this. He gave his life to free us from every form, from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. 
totally committed to doing good deeds. God has set us apart and made us new so that our works could be seen by men. And if you read verses 9 through 13, we'll read them and I'm done. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I do not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, or someone who gets drunk, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders, but you need to remove the evil person from among you. And Paul is drawing a line in the sand with anyone who claims to be a Christian but persists in this type of lifestyle. And he says, don't eat with someone who claims to be a brother and sister. The first thing he's talking about is communion. That we shouldn't share in the Lord's table with someone who claims to be a brother and sister but lives a life completely contradictory to such. Because when we take the bread, we take the wine, we're communicating that we believe and live by the gospel. But if a person is living a sexually immoral life, then they are living a life consistent with that of someone who is an unbeliever. He says don't even eat with such a person. Now here's what I want to say about this. Now some people would think, you mean to tell me I got to cut off my friends? If you have friends who are claimed to be Christians, but they live a life completely contradictory. I mean, not, not, not maybe a little struggle here and there, a little sin here and there. Or just they're, they're striving. They, they, they like pray with me. I'm, I'm trying to get through this thing. Pray with me. It's, it's hard, but, but pray with me. I know this ain't right, but, but pray with me. That's not who they're talking about. They're talking about the person who bears the name of Jesus and dares you to say something about how they live. We live together and what? Yeah, I get drunk. Jesus turned water to wine. We know people like this. But if a person intentionally, purposely, consistently lives in a way that is, that, that is contrary to the gospel, maybe you don't go and act like nothing is wrong with their lifestyle. That, that maybe when you do go to brunch, you say, hey, sis, hey, bro, um, you living foul out here. This is not God's best for your life. We, we got to make a change because we're dishonoring Christ. What is this communicating to the world? What is this communicating to our unsaved friends? How, how are we going to want them to desire Jesus? Or how, how are we going to show them the goodness of God to transform lives if we do what they do when they do it? You shouldn't be on a date doing evangelism. Let me say that again for the people, for the people in the whole congregation whose spirit just tried to reject what I just said. If you are a believer, you should not be trying to do evangelism on the day. Talking about, I don't know, Lord, I hope you change their heart. Lord, I hope they should just, Lord, I hope they would change. Lord, I hope they would see by my life the light of day. Why y'all in the bed? God, I hope that you would change them. God, I hope that you would rearrange them. Lord, I hope that they would see the light of the gospel. God's like, why are you praying? 
you trying to guess the will of the Lord, what I'm clear about. I'm going to deal with that later if you decide to come back to church. The Bible is clear that we're, we're not to be with unbelievers. But when we join together to them, we undermine the power of the gospel. We ruin our credibility. For freedom, Christ has set us free, but not freedom to go do what we want to do, free to live for him. This is what we miss. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, if you don't get anything else that I said. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. How we live matters to God. So we're not just uh, uh, faithful. We're not just celibate. We're not just abstinence just to be repressive, but we're doing it because it has a purpose. It's missional. It's evangelistic. It has a purpose, a rhyme, and a reason, and it points back to God. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? Faith over your feelings. God has called us to be ambassadors in the world. And part of that is showing people the goodness of God through the power of our transformed lives. The better story isn't, oh, man, you Christians are just so limited in what you can do. Oh, you Christians just, oh, my God, y'all don't have no fun. Oh, you Christians, oh, just do what you want to do. That's your personal decision. Sleep with who you want to sleep with, when you want to sleep with them, how you want to sleep with them. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. The better story is it matters because it matters to God. It's a better story because in it, God has created something beautiful. I want you to consider when it happens outside of God's parameters, rape, molestation, incest, adultery, and even when two single people who claim that they love each other have sex outside of marriage and then they break up, think of not just the physical but the psychological and the emotional effects that it has on people. You can't even move on to the next because you're stuck in your past. And you're willing to trade that you're willing to trade that. The problem with us, and I'm done, I know I'm over my time limit. Trey, Pastor Trey and I were sitting at dinner this week, and it just hit me while I was talking to him. The problem with us Christians is that when we think about God and his commands, we lean this way, and we immediately think, what is this going to cost me? What do I got to give up? What am I going to lose? 
How bad is this going to hurt me? How soon do I have to walk away from it? Man, I don't want to go through this. We lean this way and we lean towards what is it going to cost me versus what am I going to gain in Christ? We act like what we're going to lose is better than what God has to offer us. And it's a lie from Satan. He wants to trick you to think that this is good when the truth of the matter is, is that God is good and nothing that Satan can give us could even compare to what God has designed and God has to prepare for us. You think you know how to do relationships better than God? Really? Trey songs. I invented. No, you didn't. Shut up. How can you invent what you got hereby? Nonsense. You can't do it that good that you think you invented it. Care who you are. Y'all know I'm telling the truth. Only Trey I'm going to listen to is the Trinity. Not songs. The better story is our view of sex is better because God is better. And it is possible because we have a better story. In Jesus' name, let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.